Hello and welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bontemps, national NBA writer for the Washington Post. And today should be a fun episode with my friend Danny LaRue, uh, who writes for many different places and is also a uh, a frequent, I, I, I guess I should just say co-host of the Dunked On Basketball podcast with our mutual friend, Nate Duncan. And most importantly, is now the the head of uh, the Athletics Bay Area Warriors coverage uh, as the Athletic just launched a new site there. So, Danny, congrats on that, and how are things? Thanks. Yeah, it's going really well. It's exciting. It's amazing to be a part of something that launched just about a week ago, and the response has been wonderful so far. It's it's a really good experience, and I'm thrilled to move forward, and it's been fun for me because it's a different writing challenge than something I've done before. And, of course, as we build it out and get more good people, then it'll get even better. Yeah, no, and I want to talk a lot about that, but let's get to that later in the podcast. Yeah. Uh, first, let's talk about um, the team that you're most frequently around, the Warriors. Um, you know, yesterday's – yes, just, this is recording this on Monday afternoon. So Sunday afternoon, the, the Warriors opened their second-round series with the Portland Trailblazers, and it, it didn't look like they missed Steph Curry very much. Uh you know, Clay Thompson was great. Draymond Green was great, and they really just kind of blew the doors off the Blazers from the start. Um, I, have, I haven't got a chance to finish the uh, the podcast you did with Nate yesterday yet, um, going over the game. But what uh, what were your initial thoughts on that game, and did it surprise you at all that the outcome went the way that it did? The degree of of domination definitely surprised me, but there were some underlying facets that I I saw and just didn't expect to be as present as as early as they were. Of course, it it should also be mentioned that it was only about 40 hours, I think, after Portland had finished off the Clippers, and that's a really tight turnaround, especially when you have preparation and travel, which they did. Of course, it wasn't a lot of travel, but still some. And the two underlying factors were that Portland doesn't ha- they have really good offensive personnel in Lord and McCollum but they don't have great offensive personnel to to really strike at the Warriors because the Warriors have such good help defense and they're incredibly smart about knowing who to leave open and who to guard and then the other part is that Portland's defense just isn't that good and it's not you know horrendous they're not bottom five in the league but I think they were 20th this year and they're a specific kind of shaky which is that if you make them work for 18 to 20 seconds, you can usually, they usually they'll bust the seam somewhere. And that is dangerous against a team like the Warriors that executes so well. And so I thought both those things were true, but just they have incandescent talent. They have a lot of good, they have great coach, a lot of good guys. I thought that would be enough. And I think it will be later in the series, but it was impressive. Now I, I want to get to the Warriors more in a bit, but uh, to your point about the Blazers defense, uh, this is something I was thinking about watching that game, and I, I thought that the Blazers were going to have a ton of trouble with Golden State, even if Steph Curry couldn't play for, for kind of the reasons you mentioned. Not only is their defense bad, but uh, they don't, they also don't have enough guys that can do anything on offense. I mean, they're basically built around Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, you know, both being able to go off, and then. You know, they play a lot of guys that kind of are good defensive players and can move the, you know, Mason Plumlee is a decent passer, but they, they don't really have other guys, especially without Myers Leonard, that can either stretch the floor or can really be much of a threat. But uh, about their defense specifically, um, do you do you think that for as talented as they are offensively, you can really build a contending team long term with a backcourt of Lillard and McCollum because Absolutely. of their size? 
Absolutely, as long as you have the right center and the right rim protection and, and good coaching. I mean, you can, even with two defensive you know negatives, and I think Lillard is a bigger one than CJ, right. you can make it work. The challenge is that you need to have somebody, and the, the prototype for them in some ways would be Andrew Bogut, a guy who's a good communicator, because I think communication also helps guys who are shakier defenders get better because they kind of can embrace the team concept a little bit more. So if you get that, that'll clean up some of the mistakes. And I think they have nice defensive support pieces in Harkless if he comes back and Alfred Camino. I think those are players that can be a part of a successful defense. But without a center, without somebody who can protect the rim, I think it's almost impossible to have an elite defense, and it's incredibly hard to even have a very good one. Yeah, I just I just wonder if they can... I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think if they had a really good center, and that's why it is, it is kind of intriguing that they're, they've been mentioned as a possible destination for Dwight Howard. Not that Dwight Howard is the same player from three or four years ago, but he, he would be a big upgrade defensively over what they have. Um, but I just wonder with their size, and, and just at least at this point, if if neither of them can get better on defense, I, I, it, I just think it's a really tall task for for a team to try to build even a you know a, a good enough team defense to be really competitive cuz it it just it just seems like it's just putting so much stress on the other guys on the court over and over again to try to make up for them but um but be that as it may looking at looking at the warriors you know you, you mentioned how how well they can move the ball um when when even without curry because of how well they execute and how many options they have and you you kind of even with even with Sean Livingston playing point guard you know they're they don't really have a guy on the court that can't do something with the ball um do you think that do you think that that part of of what they do has maybe gotten a little underplayed just because of of how dominant you know not only they've been as a team but because they've got Clay Thompson and Draymond Green and and Stephen Curry that, that maybe people don't quite realize you know how much this team moves the ball and you know the amount of the amount of different ways they can score throughout a game I think it's been under under discussed and underappreciated, but for a good reason. When Stephen Curry's doing what is what he's doing, you don't need to talk about that as much. But the Warriors deserve a ton of credit, and I think you could argue that as a larger concept, this is the the single biggest difference between Steve Kerr and Mark Jackson is that Kerr's overall philosophy, and I think this is more true even on offense, is to try to, to try to maximize everybody's situation to try to make to get the best contribution out of each individual player and what that requires is players understanding not only what players can do well but what they cannot do well and what you see with them is so impressive is so the, the the warriors the lineup that started the game they played pretty well offensively i think they did well portland helped it out that lineup had only played 33 minutes together in the regular season. Of course, they're smart players who can who can you know they are the type of guys that Mark Jackson used to say you could throw them on a you could throw them on a on a team like and that never played together and it would work. But they have developed a system and a mentality that allows everybody to work within their strengths, and it is truly incredible to see that happen when you know they have players that are clear positives offensively, but we all, I think, thought that Curry is what makes their offense work, and they were able to make it sing pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 and it's not that, like, to your point, it's not that Curry doesn't make their offense work, but it, it's 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 just amazing to see how well they can make it work even when he's not there. And um, I, I think when you talk about the difference between Steve Kerr and Mark Jackson, I think really the, the, the nexus point for that, the difference in the way this team plays now is Clay Thompson, right? I mean, here's a guy that, you know, after Mark Jackson gets let go a couple of years ago and Steve Kerr gets brought in, 
that whole summer is spent basically having the entire league debate whether Golden State should move Clay Thompson as part of a package for Kevin Love, right? Like that's that's the dominant story for basically three months until you know the the Minnesota Timberwolves eventually trade Love to Cleveland for Andrew Wiggins, and you know Flip Saunders loved Clay Thompson, he would have made that deal, and after a lot of debate, the Warriors basically decided that we'd rather take a chance on Clay Thompson, and we think that this guy can take another step forward. Uh, when when we're playing an offense that that's moving the ball a lot more and is not just having him you know either in isolations or post ups and not you know kind of becoming a black hole at that end did you did you think at the time that that was the right call and have you been at all surprised at the at the way that Clay Thompson has been able to to kind of grow his game as you know as these last couple of years have unfolded. I supported trading Clay for Kevin Love. I th- I thought that the offensive potential of it was amazing. And to and, be clear, so did I. I yeah, <laughs> at the time. And so, I, and a big part of that was the idea that at the time, Clay was a, of course a wonderful catch and shoot guy. He was a supported a supporting offensive player, more in the mold of let's say like a Ray Allen who was better at defense because Clay is an underrated defender in that way. Right. And and Sunday's game I think was a great encapsulation of that. He did a very nice job on Damian Lillard, but. I just thought that was easier to replace. You know, if you got a, a really good catch and shoot guy, of course he's not going to be nearly as good as Clay, but he's going to be. But the the value added is not that different. And Kevin Love is, you know, he's a, he's a snowflake in a league of snowflakes. Like he's a very special guy that I thought a, a team could use him really well. And I thought, I believe correctly still that Love would be a very good player in that kind of a role, like a supporting role on a very good team. Clay is an, an example, and of course Stephen Curry and, and Draymond are this as well, of the importance of improving while you are a professional. I covered Clay's entire career. I've, I've been in the barrier the whole time, and he went from being a very limited guy in basically every facet other than shooting to being as close to an all-around player as, as you're going to see. He can handle the ball far better. He's become, He worked his way to being a very good defender, and he in the in the last couple of games particularly since curry went out the second time with the, with the MCL he has done an amazing job of showing that he can't like run an offense but that he can still get his and that was always my question with him is you know like if he was the best play offensive player on the team what would he be able to do and what we're learning is at least with this coaching staff and this surrounding talent he can do a whole lot yeah, I mean, I mean, to me, the, you know, that was my thought really watching that game yesterday, and I, it's something that I, I've thought about writing, especially if the series keeps going the way it is. Like that that game yesterday to me was kind of the birth of, of Clay Thompson as a true star, and you know, a, a you know, a, a maybe a potential dominant player in the league because you know, to your point, you know, with with Draymond's personality being so big, and obviously he's a fantastic player, um, and Stephen Curry being who he is. You know, Clay very happily has always kind of been floating under the radar as this third guy, and you know, people don't really either think about it or, 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 or just don't maybe don't even know it. Clay Thompson's hit more three pointers in a season than any player in league history, except for Stephen Curry, and it's it's just kind of unbelievable that they have you know I think probably the two best shooters of all time on their team, and and but not only that, as you said, over these last couple games. You know, he's been defending the other team's top perimeter guy. He's now he's scoring, you know, he had 37 points in game one, hit seven threes. You know, he's pulling up from 28 feet off the dribble. Um, 
you know, is clearly their go-to guy in offense. And to your point, they've been able to roll along, if not quite as good as they are normally, at least close enough to where they're still rolling along. And now it looks like they're going to probably cruise to the conference finals, whether Curry comes back or not. There is a remarkable aspect of this Warriors team. And of course, they their success is pretty recent. And But what it is, is that there is no disease of more with the main guys on this team. That's the, the Riley idea of that, you know, like when teams have success, the players want something more out of it. Right. And I think what a lot of that stems from is the personalities and the fact that these guys meshed before they got really successful. I mean, Draymond Green has made the playoffs every single year he's been a pro, but Stephen Clay did not. And so I think they like each other, especially those three, a lot on a personal level. And they're and they're kind of like when you see a, a band that formed when they were kids, that they fit into these they fit into these personality things. And even as they've gotten bigger, it all fits together in a way that when you kind of slap it, when you slap it all at, at a time when people are adults and have already meshed into their, you know, have, have built their personality in their lives, I think it's actually a lot easier to do it the way the Warriors do it. And it, it was fortunate. I don't think it was a plan that, hey, when these guys grow into being some of the best players in the league, they're going to already like each other. But that is what allows Clay and Draymond to be as successful as they are and not be resentful or anything like that. I think it also, as crazy as this sounds, I think it also helps that they're paid more than Steph. Not in the way that they deserve it, but in the way that they don't have to grouse that, oh, you know, like when the best player on your team and the reigning MVP is the fifth highest paid player on his own team two years in a row, then you don't even get into those dynamics because they can't grouse about that when he's get, when Curry's getting 12 mil. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, I totally agree. And to, and to your point, uh, you know, it is kind of the difference between, you know, the way the Warriors and the Spurs have kind of organically grown over time. And like, say, what the Miami Heat did or what the Cavs did, you know, with LeBron, where, you know, not that those it's not that it's a wrong way to to build a team through trade and free agency like those teams both did. But it it is, I think, a different level of comfort factor when, to your point, you have Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and Draymond Green, who've never played on another team, who've never played with other guys before, or the Spurs, who have Tim Duncan and Kawhi Leonard and and. Uh, Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili, guys who have always played for the Spurs and don't know what anything else is like, um, to where you kind of just, that's what you know as an NBA player, right? It's like, this is my team, this is how we do things, this is what it's like to be in the NBA, as opposed to, you know, like those LeBron teams where not they have tons of talent, but you have all these different pieces coming in from all over the place, and you have to try to figure out how to make them all fit and mesh and learn how people want to play on the court together. And, you know, I think it's just understandable that that process is going to be more complicated than if, to your point, you're just growing up together, basically, in the league, learning what you guys want to do right from the start. And it's really impressive for me with the Warriors guys. You talked about the Spurs, which is a great, another great example of that, because the Warriors, it grew, it was kind of like a, a plant growing out of concrete. It wasn't like the Spurs where, of course, Tim, when Tim Duncan came in, that culture didn't exist. But by, you know, by the time that he and Robinson had been together, Parker and Manu were in there pretty early. But Kawhi, when Kawhi was there, the ground was already fertile. When Stephen Curry joined the team was the first year I covered the team. This organization was not ready for pretty much anything. Right. And and so to be able to have those have those years and have those struggles, it's actually something Steph and I talk about a little bit every once in a while. Of course, now his media demands are a lot larger. Is just this appreciation that he was able to be a part of this of this team and this franchise when it was so downtrodden. 
and appreciate the success that they're having for what it is. And while Clay didn't see the, the as rough of the times because of you know because he wasn't there for the Nelson year, they he's a basketball nerd, and I think that's something that people don't appreciate with him is because he's so quiet. Is that Clay loves basketball and he appreciates what he's a part of and uh, special. And I, I'm sure he's aware. We've never discussed it that he could be doing something amazing somewhere else. But I think everybody involved in this in in the team in the franchise knows how rare something like this is and that's why it's going to be fascinating of course it unless curry leaves which i doubt in 2017 they're probably going to be together for a while and so it'll be it'll be fascinating to see what happens with the surrounding players both that they already have and that aren't on the team right now who would consider that with the stability that this team has, which is remarkable as somebody who's covered them this long. Yeah, and I, I want to get into that part because you've you've written extensively about a certain guy that that they may go that they're definitely going to try to sign this summer. But before we talk about him, I, I've I've talked about this with our mutual friend Ethan Strauss on the podcast before, but I, I don't think a lot of people quite understand what it was like to be around the Warriors up until about 2012. So, can you just kind of describe to people what it was like? Uh, when you started being around the team on a daily basis and and just kind of how stunning a transformation this franchise has had over the last several years well so it, it's a it's a really interesting thing because so when I started with them I was actually the first I, I like to classify it as I was the first internet only person not with a major site that was covering the Warriors I actually did it during my third year of law school it was 2009 it was Curry's first year and Don Nelson's last and the PR staff has always been fantastic. Ray Ritter has been there the entire time, and he's an incredible... He's the best PR person I've ever worked with in any sport. And But outside of that, the organization was just in disarray. I mean, if you ever want to get people who are, who are involved mad, talk to somebody who was in the Suns front office about what happened with the Stephen Curry potential trade. Oh, I know. That's an incredible like just, story. Walk, walk people through that. Walk people sure. through, that, through that story. So th- it's 2008, and the... The, the Knicks have the eighth pick, and everybody knows that if Curry's there, they're going to take him, and the Warriors have the seventh pick. Right. So this is before I started covering the team, but I know it all secondhand. I think Marcus Thompson wrote a really good story on this at one point. But so basically what happened is there was no real knowledge of who was going to be available, especially because the Minnesota Timberwolves had two picks right before the Warriors, and at that time it was David Kahn. Nobody knew what they were going to right, do. Right, right. And so basically Phoenix really, really wanted Stephen Curry. And... They and, came and, to, let, and let's let's tie in one thing quick. Who was running the Suns at the time? Steve Kerr. That's right, Steve Kerr. It's just a funny. It's a funny way that worked out. But anyway, yeah. And so so Steve Kerr and the rest of their front office, which I believe included Amino Hassan at the time, yes, basically he really really wanted Stephen Curry because he was a, a fascinating prospect. They thought he would fit really well with their team, and so they had negotiations with the Warriors about potentially trading for that pick. I don't know how forthright they were about who they wanted, but that is who they wanted. And so, and the Warriors, you know, they had kind of come to an understanding. And then when Curry was on the board, they drafted him, even though Curry did not want to join the Warriors. He wanted to go somewhere else. He wanted to go to the Knicks. He wanted to go to the Knicks. Yeah. I think he wanted to go basically anywhere else. (laughs) Right. Basically. Right. I think he would have been, at the time, he probably would have been happier in Minnesota. But they, so they, so that all that happens, he ends up being with the Warriors. And then there's the question of, is this trade going to happen? And what, what, from what I've heard, what transpired then was that Larry Riley was involved in the team. Bob Myers hadn't hadn't taken a role yet. Once they got him, he said, I'm not letting him go. And so the Suns are sitting there basically going, 
that's the guy we wanted. You guys drafted him. How are we not? How is this trade not happening? And so the Suns, as I've as I've heard it from people, it, it kind of got the rug pulled out from under them, which really makes you feel terrible for all of them because if that they were doing all this machinations to get one guy, and it was rumored Amari Stoudemire was in the trade, who of course at that time was a wonderful player, you know, still a contributor, and to lose the guy that you wanted for just the other team changing their mind is is brutal, and and that kind of is is emblematic of the organization at the time, you know they. They had the situation where they then, when the, when the ownership was transferring over, they signed like they signed David Lee to that ridiculous contract. They hired Keith Smart, and then even though the team wasn't that good, they fired Keith Smart because the team wasn't doing well. And so you had this kind of uncertainty. And then of course, there, for people, I, I'm going to hopefully do a podcast on this at some point. The Chris Mullen jersey retirement when Lakeup got booed mercilessly. And eventually what it happened is it took time to build the organization. And then they, they got a, they, it's a very different from what I understand conversation within the front office, but it really does work. It's an ecosystem that makes sense for this team. Yeah. They've kind of got a, it's kind of like an Abe Lincoln team of rivals situation, right? Like they've got, they've got this whole disparate group of people between, you know, Bob Myers, a GM and Steve Kerr, the coach and, you know, Travis Schlenk as assistant GM and Kirk Lacob, uh, the owner, Joe Lacob's son. They've got Joe Lacob involved. Then they've got Jerry West. Um, it is just kind of this large group, and they, you know, they hash stuff out. And and to the discussion we had earlier, I mean, there were there were people on both sides of the of the Clay Thompson Kevin Love debate. Um, you know, Jerry West famously as as being one of the guys who was very pro keeping Clay Thompson, thinking that you know moving the ball more would unlock him. But yeah, it is. It is kind of remarkable as someone who's just been an NBA fan for a long time to just see what's happened in Golden State. Because, I mean, people remember, like, the We Believe Warriors and they beat beat the Mavs. But I think that was their only series win in about, I think, 25 years before um, before the before the, the Warriors won that series against the Nuggets a couple years ago. Um, you know, that first playoff series that Curry and Thompson and Green won. Um, and it, it is unbelievable to see how quickly things have gone from you know where they were even just five years ago to where they are now, where you can argue they're they're one of the best run teams in the league. Well, so as somebody who was born and raised in the Bay Area, one thing that a lot of people outside of here don't think of with the Warriors is how all of the success that they've had in my lifetime has been short lived. Run TMC was only together for about a year and a half. Yeah, people, you, I, that is something nobody would know. Like, if you said, how long did, did Mitch Richmond, Chris, Chris Mullen, and Tim Hardaway play together? I think people outside of the Bay Area would say five or six years. And yeah, just and it was no idea. It, it, and then they, it was it was funny. Mitch Richmond was uh, he was introduced before Game Five of the Rocket Series because he's doing something. And a fan sitting in front of the media section where I was sitting was lamenting about how they traded him for Billy Owens and. It's still a wound that is sore, and so the We Believe team the next year was at that time I think still the had the best record in NBA history for a team that didn't make the playoffs. And then two years later, they were the disaster that I discussed at the beginning, at just a couple minutes ago. Right? Like it was. It, it's incredible how this franchise, when it had those runs, and it had some truly like remarkable teams when you think about the basketball landscape i mean run tmc is something for those of us who played nba jam who did all sorts of things like we grew up around a team like that they were together they were they weren't together even as long as the shack penny magic and so you had those moments so people like the warriors were in the consciousness and of course they were also in it for some negative reasons but so they had that and then now since 2012 they've made the playoffs every single year they've been better every single year than they were the year before 
And they've done it with remarkable continuity. I mean, really, the only piece that isn't continuous is the coach. And and a lot of the framework that Mark Jackson and Malone and a lot of the other members of that staff laid is a part of the new team. But they also added a whole lot on top of it. Yeah, no, no question. Now, I want to get into some of the stuff about Durant in a second. But first, let's put a let's wrap a bow up on this series. After I know it's only been one game. Um, game two will be Tuesday tomorrow. I know you'll be there. Um, then you'll be, you know, they'll, they'll be in Portland this weekend. Um, what do you, what do you think is going to happen in the rest of the series? And did, did game one, in your opinion, make it any more likely to you that the series will go shorter than maybe you thought it would have beforehand? It absolutely did because I was skeptical that they would, I I thought that Portland would bring it at least one of the games at Oracle and maybe get a split there just with a, a weakened Warriors team. And what it did is it made me more confident that the Warriors will win their home games and less confident that Portland can win every home game for them. So I was I felt like it was going to be a six-game series with the idea that with Curry they could win game six in Portland. Now, I think five is, is substantially more likely than before and might even be the most likely outcome. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that too. I mean, I, like I said earlier, I kind of thought coming into this series that because the the Blazers are so dependent on McCollum and, and Lillard to score, and the Warriors are, are almost perfectly suited to guard them because they've got all these long athletic guys, whether it's Sean Livingston or Clay Thompson or Andre Godala, they can throw on those guys that are bigger than them and stronger than them and can kind of muscle them around and, and just make it hard on them to score. I, I just couldn't see Portland scoring enough to make in this a long series, even, even without Steph Curry. Um, so I, I kind of thought it was going to be Blazers and five. All right, not Blazers. I thought it was going to be Warriors and five from the start. That you know, Portland will go to the Rose Garden up in Portland. They'll get a game there, and then they'll come back to Oracle and they'll get running game five, and that'll be that. Now, one more thing. Um, it sounds like basically, you know, the Warriors have gotten kind of unbelievably lucky in the sense that you know when Steph Curry goes down with the sprained MCL a little over a week ago, um, we were we were kind of going, man, this could be. You know, maybe this run is going to end. You know, with Curry either being hobbled or, or not. You know, he might be can't come back for the second round, and they, you know, they're probably going to play the Clippers, and that'll be tough for them to win. A day later, everybody on the Clippers gets hurt; they're out of the playoffs. Now it seems like Curry might come back possibly as soon as this weekend. Um, I guess it's probably been kind of remarkable to be around that. But more specifically, do you think that the Warriors should just? let Curry rest, if not for this entire series, certainly for as much of it as possible, given the way it looks like it's going? If they can if they can physically restrain him from getting onto the court if he feels he's ready, yeah, they absolutely should. Right. Because they don't need him in in that sense. And if they can if they can go into Portland two oh, if if I could unilaterally make that decision, I would say he shouldn't play in either of the games in Portland, even if he's feeling completely ready to go because the the issue and we've seen this throughout the league with guys like Rudy Gobert who had who had a grade two MCL sprain but same kind of idea is that it takes a while to get to 100% and the the less strain you can put on before that point it feels like that will help not only help you get closer to 100% faster but also just be stronger at each step of the process so for me you don't want to put that on however realistically if it goes let's say there is a fifth game which I fully expect 
especially if he has gotten the MVP award between now and then, I think it would be brutally hard for him to be on the court, like accepting the MVP award and then not play if he feels healthy. Yeah, I agree. I I think game five, I think it's going. Yeah. I think game five makes the most sense, right? Let's, let's assume they win game two, which I think we both think they will. If you split three and four, you come back for game five, you let Curry play, you know, probably you don't even have to necessarily play him a ton of minutes, but get him, get him some game action, you know, if they win that game, he gets, you know, most of another week to then get himself recovered. And if he plays one game in essentially three weeks, you know, it it, it should allow him to be back to, you know, as close to 100% as he's probably going to be anyway. And then you have him ready for the conference finals. But be that as it may, let's skip ahead now to the topic that, that you've maybe discussed more than anybody in the basketball writing community over the last year, which is the the Warriors' potential pursuit of Kevin Durant. Um, with the salary cap going up, there's going to be a lot of teams that are going to have the option to go after him, but the Warriors are uniquely suited to do so because not only will they have some cap space and some flexibility to get more to probably be able to get Durant if, if he chooses to go there, they also don't have to get rid of a lot of their core pieces to do it. So um, for those that haven't seen your work on this yet, can you um, can you kind of lay out the path to the Warriors having enough room to be able to sign him next summer or this summer, sure. I should say? Yeah, so the basic concept, and this is actually, you could argue, is the way that the Warriors were luckiest more than any of the other stuff that people have talked about, you know, with injuries and the playoffs and all that, is that their best players became free agents at exactly the right time. So a lot of how this opens up is that Stephen Curry is on the best value contract in the league. I think he's going to make about $12 million next season, and he's under that contract. There's no reason to change it. Draymond Green and Klay Thompson signed for about the maximum they were allowed for, but it's just that it, that has risen a lot. So they can, they can do that. So basically, the way for me any analysis of the Warriors getting Durant starts is with saying, okay, those three guys are under contract and they can still add him in no matter what. The really fun part of it is how you handle the next thing. And the general assumption that I would use, and this can't, this won't change even if the cap goes as high as $95 million, is that they can keep one of Andre Iguodala, Andrew Bogut, and Harrison Barnes. Wh- whichever one they want, they can keep them. Iguodala and Bogut are under contract. Barnes is going to be a restricted free agent, whatever they want to do. And they can keep each one of those guys plus Festus Azili. And depending on where the cap goes, probably Kevon Looney and their other draft picks as well. It gets sticky with Sean Livingston. He's a guy who actually, it depends on where the cap goes. But when you really think about it, so that's the core of this Warriors team. And the easiest way to think about it might actually be you take the Warriors and you replace Harrison Barnes with Kevin Durant. It's not bad. It's not bad. It's not, it's not bad. I mean, and my personal feeling is that offense is a collaborative, is a collaborative kind of piece and uh, people have referred to basketball as jazz before and to me it's like when you have better artists you can reach heights that you can't even really think about and defense is kind of that way but I think offense is more there so when when people say oh how much better can the Warriors offense get my answer is I don't think we can conceive of how good it could be yeah I would agree with that and and we've talked about this too my my one concern with with the potential Durant acquisition for the Warriors and look I mean Kevin Durant is an unbelievable player and in, in basically any scenario, if you can get a guy like Kevin Durant on your team, you should go do it. But the one concern I have is you look at the Warriors, right? And they're in, they're kind of this perfectly created ecosystem like we've talked about where they have all these guys that kind of all fit into these roles perfectly and they're happy with them and, and everything is kind of set. 
And the one the the guy that I I most wonder about how things would go if this happened would be Clay Thompson, who we talked about earlier. And the reason why is you know Clay is a guy who is you know as you talked about earlier is a guy that has never really been all that concerned about having any spotlight on him or or you know he he's been perfectly content to let Steph and, and Draymond kind of become these giant personalities you know in terms of stardom and he can float along in the background and get his shots and, and play and go home. But is there any concern that that might start to change a little bit if Clay Thompson goes from being a guy that, that's getting basically shots whenever he wants to a guy that becomes the third or fourth option and is maybe getting eight shots a game? And if he's getting eight shots a game, is he as willing to play defense at the other end? And does, does that kind of stuff start to mess with things a little bit in your mind? Or is that just worth the risk because of the potential you would get with getting Durant anyway. There is absolutely a risk. And the way that I phrased it before privately, and I'm happy to do it publicly now is that anybody who thinks that Durant to the Warriors is a no brainer, one direction or the other is wrong, right? It's, it's not an, it's not an easy decision in the sense that there are major factors with personalities. And when you're dealing with a team that just went 73 and nine, there, there isn't a whole lot of up to do. But the reason that it's worth it is because of a factor that we we often don't think about in team building, but is incredibly important, and that is the factor of time and aging. What Kevin Durant does is he might narrow the window a little bit in the present just because of adjustment time, like we saw the first year with Miami. But he is another incredibly high-ceiling player who allows you to withstand the aging that happens to, to, to Iguodala, to Andrew Bogut, to basically everybody, and the Warriors, as great as they are, they're at this point right now where other than Looney, who of course didn't play at all this year really, they don't have many players who get minutes who are going to be better than they are right now. And when you win 73 games, that's not a big deal, but eventually you're going to need an infusion, and there is no better player that will probably ever be available during this run than Kevin Durant, and he gives them the talent, specifically offensively, to withstand injuries or ineffectiveness to any other player. So he's kind of like, he's insurance, and he's the best insurance you could possibly have. So when Curry goes out, like you can imagine how this series will look, especially considering Clay guards ones, you could just throw throw Kevin Durant out there. The offense is going to be different, but as long as he's willing to do it. And the other big part of the personality point, which I, I don't hear people make enough, and I think is very important in this, is that there is there is a selection bias in it. And what I mean by that is that if Kevin Durant makes the decision to join this Warriors team and everything that comes with it, I think he has to be doing so with the understanding of what that means for him personally. And I think if the Warriors would doing, be doing themselves a disservice by not making that because his legacy, his life, his role changes for the rest of his life by being a part of this team for better or for worse. And he has to know that going in. And if he makes an informed decision, then he has to be willing to play ball with what that means in terms of being able to share the ball, try on defense and everything else like that. And I I don't doubt that he'll do that because he wants to win, but it's important in this conversation as well. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that to me has just been the thing that's always kept me from thinking that he's going to actually do this. And look, it would be incredible if he did from just a, as a basketball fan and just, it's just kind of a basketball experiment to see, you know, let's say the Warriors do manage to stay healthy the rest of the way. And if they do, I think they're going to win the title, you know, to have the, in my opinion, what would have been the greatest team of all time, then add a hall of fame player without losing any of their three guys who are probably going to be hall of fame players, all in their prime, all in their mid to late 20s is pretty incredible. But 
you know, I, I think that last point you made is a really important one, where if Kevin Durant goes to the Golden State Warriors, he is at best tied with being with Draymond Green as being the second banana in terms of popularity, in terms of standing in the locker room, in terms of his role on the team. Because, you know, he's a terrific player, but that's Stephen Curry's team, and it's not going to change. And, you know, to your point, the way that the Warriors play isn't going to change. You know, Kevin Durant isn't going to come there and get the ball every time down court, and you know things aren't going to revolve around him. And it's just hard for me to see him signing up for that and all that comes with it, um, where he could go basically anywhere else and be the guy and still be able to have enough talent around him to make a run at the at the Warriors from somewhere else, whether it's with the Clippers or if he stays with Ross in OKC or he goes somewhere else. And it, but it, but man, it, it certainly would be fascinating if if he did decide to do it and and accept all that come, would come with 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 him going to Golden State because that to your point, I mean, I, I don't I I do think people don't realize how unguardable that team would be. I mean, they're they're already pretty much unguardable with Harrison Barnes playing, who is a fine player, but he obviously isn't Durant. And if you put him out there with that lineup, man, I mean, I just don't know who could possibly guard them. When you think about it from the perspective of almost every NBA team plays at least one guy who's shaky defender or worse, you know, Damian Lillard on the Blazers, Harden on the Rockets, Parker on the Spurs, where are you going to put that guy? Right. Where, where you, 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 There's nowhere to do that. And all of those players have, through their life of experience, have done and have built the time exploiting mismatches. Draymond Green did it when they switched Smalls onto him yesterday. Clay Thompson's done his whole career. That is Kevin Durant's entire life. You know, that's what those guys do. And so if it breaks down into the into that kind of a thing, this Warriors team can be better. But I want to, another point that isn't made enough in this, and you and I have talked about this privately, that I think is going to be a very big part of Kevin Durant's decision, maybe not this year, but next year, because I think he's going to sign a one plus one. And I do meaning too. When you're in a player option. Right, and to, stay, it with is, the, it is to this, stay with the Thunder It too. is this basic idea. If Kevin Durant re-signs long-term with the Oklahoma City Thunder, unless they do a lot better in the next, you know, this year or next year than I expect, we have to be ready three or four years from now to start having the conversation about whether he is the greatest player in NBA history to never win a championship. And as much as it's terrifying to, for him, I can imagine to think about what it would be like to be on the Warriors. I cannot imagine. Like you, we, you think about all the stuff that Charles Barkley gets for that. Sure, Kevin Durant is leagues ahead of of Charles Barkley as a player. Like he's one of the best offensive players in modern history. He's not terrible defensively, but he's that he's that guy in a way that that as great as Chuck was, he wasn't that guy. And to have somebody that good have a very real chance of never winning a championship in their prime. You know, like that's different than a guy like Stockton or even Malone who are very good, but not, not, not Durant good. And I can't imagine how hard that would be to deal with. And, you know, that wouldn't say that he, it would be a death sentence for his legacy or anything like that, but it would be very different. And I can imagine why for him, or let's say for Anthony Davis, when you look at where he might be in four or five years, that how hard that would be to take to see the guys that you've known from team USA, your friends, have this immense success and have you never reach it, if you're a competitor like I know he is, that would drive you insane. No, and, and it's a great point. I mean, it's a great point. And look, you look at the 90s, right? And basically, Hakeem and Michael Jordan robbed an entire generation of stars from getting a championship, whether it's Patrick Ewing, whether it's Barkley, um, whether it's Carl Malone, you know, whether it's Gary Payton. 
Like you can, or Gary Payton, I guess got one later. I I forget he was with the Heat, but um, but you look at you look at a lot of those guys, those star players from the '90s, and you know most of them didn't win. And I mean, it, it looked like David Robinson was going to be one of those guys, and then Tim Duncan showed up on his team, and you know then he got one. But yeah, I I think I think that is a I think that is something that a guy like that Durant would have to consider. So now that you said that, I just was thinking about it as you were talking, who is the greatest player that hasn't won a championship right now? Is it Barkley? I think it probably is. That would be a better question for Nate. Um, but I think that Bar- Barkley, off the top of my head, has to be a leader. And I would, of course, exclude players who played, you know, in the days before, like, a championship. But also, when you think about how good modern guys are, you know, Barkley was was close to the modern era. And, and also, I like to look more at peak than longevity. Like, I think Stockton probably had the best career of somebody who never won a championship. Right. But that's a different thing. Right. No, I I'd agree I'd agree with that. But um but yeah, I mean it's it's uh it is a it is a fascinating layer of that debate. Now, um before before I let you go, I want I want to talk about the new site. So um you just launched it prior to game five of the Rocket series, right? Correct. Okay, so so the Athletic ha- already has a site in Chicago where John Greenberg is uh, an- another friend of mine who is working there. Um, they're doing a lot of really good stuff covering the, the the teams in Chicago, and you just launched the basically the the Bay Area version of the site just launched with you covering the Warriors. So um, if you could kind of walk people through um, what what the deal with the site is, how to sign up you know, what your goals for it are, you know, kind of, kind of lay out what, what your vision is for it. Now that, now that it's, now that it's up and running. So the athletic is a model that is based on subscriptions. And so for some people, that's a little bit of sticker shock because yes, it is money, but the benefit is that you don't have to deal with ads and everything like that. And so for some people that's worth it for some people, you know, you make your own opinions, but why I really like it beyond the fact that the people who are running it do an amazing job and I, I actually consider myself even luckier because they happen to be based out here. So like I get to meet with them all the time in person, which I personally prefer is that I think it is the most sustainable model in terms of sports journalism and sports writing moving forward. Because in my, and of course this is me speaking for myself, but I've been in this business now for, for seven years in a lot of different capacities, writing for different outlets and everything. And the problem with ad based material is that when an organization is profit motivated, it leads to it leads you down a specific path in terms of sports writing, which is basically clickbait. And while you can write other things that end up doing well, there is a there is a little bit of a driver to focus on the big teams, to focus on that, and to to do less work on the less appreciated stories. I'm I'm lucky enough that the Durant piece that I wrote for the Sporting News got so big, but I don't I and I don't write with that mentality. And what how I'm interpreting the athletic is that there's so much great sports writing, you know, in the Bay Area. There, are Tim Kawakami, Ethan Sherwood Strauss, Marcus Thompson, Rusty Simmons. I could go through a million other people. Mark Spears, of course. And I don't want to replace what they're doing. What I want to do is have a conversation about this Golden State Warriors team that did not previously exist and that I think is worth paying for. And that's really what the athletic is going to be for me is pulling the best and brightest because everyone has an opinion on this team and saying, you have an open platform to talk about this team that I know you're thinking about, that I know you're watching, and your insight is going to be something that people who are fans of basketball, people who are fans of this team, haven't really seen in, in all in one place before. And that's what I want the athletic to be. And if it works and it, it's something that can carry on to other areas, then I think it can also be a, a nice 
financial foundation for the best sports writers in the country because as this expands if you can create like you let's say you can find 15 to 30 great writers and they can write insightful things on various teams then they can build a life out of that yeah no i i'm and i think it i i as somebody who's in this business i am very interested in trying to find a way to ensure that it is existing throughout my hopefully long career in the business so that I don't have to go try to find something else to do. And I think that, you know, for a lot of reasons, I think subscription-based bottles in the future are going to make a lot of sense. And as we as we kind of evolve as a business, I think, you know, finding finding ways to get people to pay for what we do is important. So I am, uh, beyond the fact you're my friend, I am I am hopeful that uh, the site is great on that level because the more ways we can convince people to consume uh, sports journalism is and journalism in general is uh, is a way for me to continue to get paid doing it. So I uh, and I and you obviously have a you know you do a great job and I'm sure that it's going to be a good site. So um, with that being said, Danny, let me let you go because I know you've got a million things going on since you write for not only Athletic but a million other places as well. And in addition to doing the podcast with Nate. So before, before I let you get out of here, uh, tell everybody how they can find you wherever they can find you. And, um, and I, you've done a lot of good work lately. So, so plug, plug some stuff on your way out too. Okay. So I write for, of course, the athletic, which is the athletic.com and the Bay area site is the athletic.com slash SF Bay. And I, I create my own content, and I also am heavily involved in recruiting other people to do their work. So we just had a great series preview by Arturo Galetti, which is which is up there, and I, I really enjoyed that as well. I write for the Sporting News. I do CBA, CBA, so collective bargaining agreement stuff, but it can expand beyond that, like, of course, the Durant piece. And then I write for Real GM. I, do, I put a lot of other material there. I do the Dunked On Basketball podcast with Nate as often as he'll have me on, which is a lot. And I do Real Jam Radio, which is a weekly, more of like a long interview. Of course, you've been on it before. And you can follow me on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. I'm on Facebook, Danny LaRue NBA. And through those, you can see I also put out a hopefully weekly email digest of kind of everything that I've done, plus recommendations of, you know, all the stuff that I read. And so... You know, it's it, it's fun to be able to now have this have this experience, and so if you want to engage with me as well, I encourage that, and I read everything that I get, and I respond to as much as I can. I, I don't know, I, I don't know how Danny has enough time in day because I, I feel like I'm busy, and every time I am either on social media or somewhere, he has either he's either on a podcast or he's recording his own podcast or he's coming out with his own newsletter or his own article from somewhere. It's a uh, it's an impressive work rate, and it's all good stuff, so you should definitely check it out. Um, as for me, you can find my work at the Washington Post and on our website. You can follow me on Twitter, at Tim Bontemps. You can follow me on Facebook, at Tim Bontemps MBA. Um, thank you to Glenn Yoder and the Western States for the theme music for the podcast, which if you could give it a five-star review and a rating on iTunes, that'd be great. Um, and with that, Danny LaRue, this has been a pleasure, my friend. Good luck, like I said, with the site. I'm sure it's going to be great. And given the way this Spurs Thunder series that I'm at is going, I have a feeling that I'll be seeing you in Oakland in a couple weeks. I guess two weeks from today is the likely start of the Western Conference Finals. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll be looking forward to seeing you then. Yeah, the real NBA Finals. <laughs> the real NBA Finals, that's right. So, all right, thanks, Danny, and, uh, and thanks to everybody else, and we'll talk to you guys again soon.